Welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and I'm excited to talk with our guest today, Amelia Yates. Amelia Yates is a pianist, adjudicator, and instructor from Hamilton, Ontario. A recent graduate of the Doctor of Musical Arts program at the University of Western Ontario, Dr. Yates' research focuses on the solo piano music of Canadian composer Anne Southam. She is passionate about researching and performing the music of contemporary Canadian composers. In addition to performing as a soloist, Dr. Yates also enjoys collaborating with others in chamber groups and working with large ensembles and choirs. She teaches piano lessons from her home studio, AGY Piano, and her goal is to help students perform, understand, and enjoy music thoughtfully, healthily, and artfully. She is also passionate about applying teaching approaches that nurture students' mental health and empower them to think critically and independently. Dr. Yates's students have received awards for both composition and performance at the local and national levels. Dr. Yates holds positions on the board of the Hamilton Halton branch of the Ontario Registered Music Teachers Association and the Hamilton Music Festival. She is honored to support the Association of Canadian Women Composers as an associate member, and Dr. Yates is also a member of the Royal Conservatory of Music's College of Examiners. Now, full disclosure, for our audience here today, Amelia and I are dear friends. We met at Western University when she accompanied me for a vocal methods class, and we became fast friends. Amelia is a knowledgeable researcher and performer on the piano music of Anne Southam, and I thought it was a perfect topic to discuss here during Canada Music Week. Welcome, Amelia. It's so good to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Olivia. It's an absolute pleasure. Yay, I'm so excited that we get to have this conversation, which we've talked a lot about outside of a recording, (laughs) but now we get to record our conversations. I always like to start with the origin story. So Amelia, for those who don't know you, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and what led you down the path of being a pianist? Okay, so great question. I guess I'll start with what led me down the path of becoming a pianist. I thank my parents for valuing music and music education. I remember being really little and sitting up at the piano in my family's home, making up my own little songs and imitating my older sister, Gloria, who was already in piano lessons. And then I formally started lessons when I was five. And honestly, Olivia, I really haven't stopped playing piano ever since then. Sure, there were certainly times when I was like a preteen, and I thought my dance lessons were more fun than piano and I didn't practice nearly as much as I should have. But the rule in my house was no dance without piano lessons and I'm very thankful for that. Once I entered high school, my whole musical world opened up even more and I found myself at home in the music room. And pretty much ever since then, I had been dedicated to being a musician and more specifically a pianist. I've encountered an abundance of supportive and encouraging teachers and mentors throughout my journey who've inspired me to keep growing as a musician. And whether this is a good or a bad thing, I've very much formed my identity around being a pianist and around music. And I'm privileged to have built a life where, at least for now, I can engage with, with music and every every day. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that. So that's sort of what led me down to being a pianist. <laughs> I love that. You said like you formed your identity around being a pianist. A couple of weeks ago, we had Karen Garrelis on the podcast talking about musicians' identity. And the key was that they identified as being a musician. That was something that was necessarily bestowed on them, but that that's what they felt that they were. And that had a lot of impact on their musical trajectory. So I think that must be true of you too. <laughs> it sounds like it is. Absolutely. And I like that you, you were saying that there was no dance without piano because your parents probably saw that the music informed the dance and the dance probably informed the music. Oh. 
Absolutely. I think that that's true. And I know that now. I know that in how I embody and how I play and how I use my technique. And I even see that in my own students as well. I find that those with some dance training, there's just that body awareness, that ability to shape sound using your yeah. body. And, and of course, the sense of pulse, right? <laughs> yeah, most importantly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you are a newly minted doctor of musical arts. Congratulations. And your research focused on the work of Ann Southam. So how did you come about that research? Like what drew you to Anne Southam's music? And for those who may not have heard of Anne, who was she and how did she shape the musical landscape here in Canada? Yeah, so I first encountered Anne Southam and her music when I was a teenager. I was studying level eight piano repertoire and my teacher at the time, her name was Marsha Heeg, uh, well her name is Marsha Heeg, but she was my teacher at that time, uh, recommended Anne's three and blue jazz preludes. And I learned number two. So it's funny, believe it or not, this set of pieces Anne is really well known for those three in blue, at least among the piano teaching community, even yeah. though it's written in a style that she didn't cultivate a lot of. And I just think that's kind of funny. So anyway, I absolutely love this piece. I just thought the bluesy style was just so much fun as a 15 year old. It was fantastic. Years later, I was reminded of Southam's music while listening to CBC radio. Funny story. I was actually driving to my part time job as a cashier at the Real Canadian Superstore and <laughs> literally had to pull the car over to write down the name of what I had just listened to because it had such a tremendous impact on me. It was Southam's piece, Remembering Schubert. I think you've played I that. I love that. Or at piece least it was played music. at your wedding. I remember yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was drawn to the texture and delicacy of the motifs. The harmonic palette was modern. It was tonal, but there was this treatment of dissonance that was just so moving. And so naturally, I learned the piece for one of my master's recitals and made note that this would not be the last of Southam's music that I would learn. It was was truly the exquisite beauty of her music that I connected to immediately. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the first exposures, I suppose, to Anne's music. And then fast forward when I began to pursue my doctoral studies. And believe it or not, I was accepted based on a completely different research proposal, something to do with piano technique through the ages or something like that. And then I thought about mindfulness and music performance and I started to pursue that a little. I knew that I wanted my work to be practical and useful. And in the meantime, Anne was always in the background. I was learning more of her music, including movements of her river sets. And then finally, I stopped fighting against my instincts. And with the help of uh, my piano literature course, where I was able to do more digging, I decided to dedicate my research to Anne and her piano music. At this time, there's no formal academic work dedicated solely to this topic. And I felt that I could fit that niche with the hope that my broad scope project <laughs> could set the stage for even more research that will support the preservation and dissemination of Southam's piano music. So that's sort of how I got into researching Anne's music. And then to address the final part of your question, who is Anne Southam and how did she shape the musical landscape? I've done my best to provide a very brief summary. Of course, this question needs a book to answer it. So here I go. <laughs> <laughs> Southam, um, she has been acknowledged as the best known Canadian composer of minimalist music. While minimalism is a large part of her creative output, her catalog actually spans a variety of mediums and styles ranging from electroacoustic music to orchestral works, chamber, and solo pieces written in jazz styles, 12-tone, and minimalist styles. Many have praised Southern's unique compositional approach, and I often use this quote from Eva Goyen because I think she was absolutely 
absolutely right here that seldom was her own school of music composition. Her music just covers a broad spectrum of emotional expressiveness. She has her overt and virtuosic pieces and then there's a whole bunch of other pieces that are just so tender and subtle and contemplative. A little bit more about just quickly her background. She studied composition with Samuel Dolan at the Royal Conservatory in the 60s and she was actually a trailblazer in Canadian electroacoustic music and then in the 1970s she began composing for acoustic instruments again of course including piano. And just one more note about Anne. She's not only remembered as a great composer but also a generous volunteer, philanthropist, known for supporting the arts and empowering women. For example she was one of the founding members of the Association of Canadian Women Composers and she supported many other music organizations across Canada. Uh, most notably she bequeathed millions of dollars to the Canadian Women's Foundation and that money has helped establish programs that break down barriers to gender equality for women and girls in Canada. So like not only did Southam leave a beautiful musical legacy, she just was such a generous and wonderful human, especially for women and girls in Canada. So a remarkable yeah. human being for sure. That was my just very- across the board. <laughs> I tried to be succinct there. <laughs> She really did leave a mark. And, and here in Ottawa, where I am, the University of Ottawa, where I study, we have the Anne Southern Piano Pedagogy Laboratory, where she donated tons of money to get that project started. You know, she's really impacted the arts and specifically women. I'm so grateful for that. I want to touch on what you said a moment ago. Eva Goyan said she was in a league, her own league of composers. The quote is, Anne was her own school. So her own school. Her own school her of music composition. I think that we often try to like pigeonhole composers into a style of music. They're from this school of thought. They're from this style. They fit into this. But here's sort of how they differ. And a lot of times we could use that idea. They're their own school, right? They're just themselves composing music rather than trying to follow in the footsteps of Brahms or Beethoven or, you know, any of these older composers. And I think that it's funny we talk about this, but then in my monograph, I try to fit and within a school. But historically, <laughs> it's nice to have that context right yeah. but then I do acknowledge where her uniquenesses come out and I think that's where Eve was, was seeing that too yeah absolutely your research has a new unique aspect you mentioned that you really wanted to research something that was practical that was useful and that turned into a performance guide for the pianist and teacher which is really the first of its kind on Anne Southam's music can you explain what's in your performance guide Absolutely. Let's go chapter by chapter. That's yeah. probably the easiest yeah. way to do this. The first chapter, of course, after explaining, you know, what's the purpose of all this, I include a biographical sketch of Southam. I preferred this title as it's in no way a thorough biography, but it is a little bit of insight into Southam's life, career, accomplishment, accomplishments, pardon me, and impact. I never had the pleasure of meeting Southam, so I tried to show my perspective that I formed based on the articles and interviews in other media that I studied. Then the second chapter is a complete overview of Southam's works for solo piano. It's intended to show the extent of her vast creative output for the instrument, and it's a great place for a pianist to look when they wish to start playing her music. I went through all the solo piano music I could find, maybe I missed some, anything I could find, and divided it into categories based on their musical characteristics. So the categories that I came up with were her early non-minimalist music. It's a collection of works for 
from when she was a student composer, her early days of composing, showing her training in the more conventional 12-tone system. Seldom's jazz-style works, that's another category, were likely pedagogical in nature <laughs> and show her use of jazz-style language with quasi-improvisatory melodies, blues scales, syncopated rhythms, blues progressions, things like that. The third category, of course, is the biggest. It's minimalism, and it walks the readers through a variety of her minimalist works and her approaches to minimalist writing. And then the fourth category I call blended works. It includes pieces that unify that full textured, emotionally overt 12-tone writing that she cultivated earlier in her life, in her career, with elements of minimalist writing as well. I also created a full catalog of her piano works, which pairs really well with this chapter. And honestly, Everybody, if you're interested in looking into playing some of Anne's music and need a quick resource just that summarizes, go to this catalog first, okay? And I will link it. It's I'll very, it very helpful. <laughs> At least I hope it's helpful. Yeah. I think when I was first looking into Anne's music, I would have really wanted this resource, and that's why I made it. So mm -hmm. I hope that others find it helpful too. The third chapter narrows more into her minimalist music because that was her largest output. Playing minimalist music was not part of my piano training, and I don't think I'm alone in this. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think I am. Therefore, I attempted to give a brief summary of minimalism to provide some historical context and a style summary to pianists like myself who maybe learned about it in music history class but never actually got to play any in our lessons or in the repertoire that we're studying. And then I started a conversation on where Southam may fit into the minimalist school of composing. Full disclosure, I'm not a musicologist and I only scratched the surface here, but it's definitely a start. And then I focused on summarizing like the significant features of Southam's music. And those include, at least in my view, her flexible processes that represent a feminist aesthetic, her unique harmonic language, and the teleology in her minimalist works. So this chapter, I just hope, will inspire well-informed interpretations of her minimalist music. And then I think, I know that the whole document is called a performance guide, and yes, it's from the perspective of a performer, of a pianist, but it's that fourth chapter, which is like the actual performance guides. And so what I do in this chapter is I talk about both technical and interpretive aspects of playing Seldon's pieces, informed by my personal experience playing her music, as well as the experience of others who have played Seldon's music and just minimalist music generally. It's my hope that by sharing the knowledge I gained researching how to perform Seldom's works and performing them myself that I might start a discourse on playing Seldom's music and that other pianists might start to share their experiences so that eventually we may establish some conventions to follow when playing Southern's music, because having some agreed upon principles to follow makes music more approachable, right? Yeah. We all know how to start learning a Chopin Nocturne. We all know how to start learning a Bach Fugue. Sometimes when you're presented with this minimal music, you just don't know where to start, right? Yeah. By establishing some conventions to use as a starting point, pianists trained in the Western art music tradition may one day be just as willing to add Southern's music to their repertoire as we are to include Beethoven and Debussy and, and Chopin. So that's my summary of what is included in this document. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And I will, I will link that. Uh, I'll link your dissertation or sorry, your monograph. And I will link any of the resources that you have listed specifically on your website and where people can find more information about that. And it's because of you really that I have students at all levels learning Anne Southam's music and they love it. Specifically, one book that's getting a lot of use in my studio right now is The Sound Spinnings, which are the early, early minimalist music. And I think they're just perfect pieces for introducing what minimalism is to students. And I had a student that I gave it to her one week and she was probably playing at a level four level. And two weeks later, it was in the summertime. She had the whole piece learned. She just loved it. She ate it up. And it's because of you that I've started teaching more of Anne Southam's music. Oh, that makes me so happy. That's exactly what I had hoped this work would do. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to hear that. And those pieces, the sauna cycles and sound spinnings from her stitches in time, they're like smaller versions of her Rivers third set. They're fantastic for students, but they're fantastic for everybody, especially as a way to get into the longer and larger works. I just love them. They're beautiful. And they're just these lovely vignettes. You could play the whole book as a set of pieces. They're just great. Mm -hmm. You also had mentioned earlier that Anne had like so many styles of writing. Minimalist was her largest output, but she also did electroacoustic and jazz and blues styles. So is there a common thread? between them that you found or not so much? The common thread, maybe not in the jazz style pieces, Mm -hmm. but the common thread among the other styles, with the exception of, you know, the glass houses that don't use tone rows (laughs) and in Rivers' third set that don't use tone rows, but everything else, it is the tone rows. Yeah. That's the common thread. Absolutely. Another interesting thing that I found when I was doing this research and this was at the band center was a document that had her, I call them her favorite rows than all the transpositions of those rows. That document made analyzing her music so much more meaningful because I'm like, okay, here are all her rows. Which pieces use this row? Which pieces use this row? And I actually started a list in my monograph. It's not complete, but it's of start. And maybe there's information we can find this style of piece use this row and this style. I don't know yet. I haven't thought about it that hard, but it's fascinating that this was her harmonic language that she used for her whole career. For those who have not studied tone rows, because it's a very specific (laughs) sort of niche (laughs) idea that we have to study in music theory and and stuff, could you briefly just touch on what is a tone row for those who might not know? So music is often made from scales. I think most people would know what a a major scale or a minor scale is. And then we we use that to create melodies and then we build chords on the notes in those scales. A tone row is a series of 12 pitches placed in an order of the composer's creation. And then that kind of becomes the scale, so to speak, on which the piece is created. Mm -hmm. That's my very basic description of tone rows. I'm sorry, (laughs) music theorists who probably have a better one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's fine. (laughs) They can deal with it. No, that's that's a great description. Okay, so now looking at Anselm's music, specifically the minimalist glass houses or rivers, it can be really challenging at first. Where do you start when you're looking at it? Maybe specifically her glass houses. Like, what do you do first 
Absolutely. Olivia, you are not wrong in that these are challenging works. <laughs> We're faced with a seamless stream of tunes that unfold over a relentless ostinato in the left hand. And this type of music requires tremendous mental and physical stamina, as well as top-notch technique, <laughs> and particularly hand independence. Mm -hmm. The wonderful pianist Christina Prochowska Kuliko describes these works as fiendishly difficult etudes for piano. I remember when I first looked at one of the glass houses, I ended up like putting it aside for a while because I was a little overwhelmed. I'm like, how do I do this? <laughs> so I'm not selling these very well. They're fantastic pieces. And really, once, we, once you settle in and start to understand what's happening, they're so much fun. So these are my recommendations as a starting point. So pianists out there, if you want to play glass houses, you start by deciphering the score. So analysis. The structure can be determined by the order in which the tunes are introduced. So in these pieces, you have a set of tunes, that's what Anne called them, tunes, that you play with your right hand, and then the left hand plays an ostinato that is continuous. And so you can determine the structure by the order of the tunes. So what do I do here? I like to mark the different sections with a letter, and I like to number the tunes. So for example, in Glass Houses number three, the process is pretty straightforward where the A section includes tune one and two, the B section includes one, two, and three, the C section, one, two, three, four, etc. It changes a little bit near the end, but each section adds a tune. Another one, Glass Houses number five, slightly different by the E section, the tune order becomes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, six, five, but there is a pattern there right? Mm -hmm. And so having a sense of the structure is really helpful because this music is so seamless, right? You can't visually on the page see, oh, there's the beginning of a phrase or the end of a phrase. Yeah. Oh, this looks like an exposition and here's the development, here's the recapitulation. It's not like that. <laughs> so I find that really, really helpful first. And then analysis is also key for finding some potential errors. So full disclosure, the version of the glass houses that you can get from the Canadian Music Centre was redone in 2000 based on some updates actually that Han did by hand. She preferred to work by hand. I was able to attain the 2009 handwritten scores from Anne. There may have been some errors in how they were transcribed to the digital version. No big deal. <laughs> Just keep that in mind. I won't go on at length here about that. But pianists, if you feel as though there might be an issue in the score, you're probably not wrong. It may be missing a tune repetition. Ostinato alignment might be off. No big deal. Come up with a creative solution. I say that because I think I was so bogged down by a few of these things mm -hmm. for a while that they made me not want to play the piece. So right. just keep that. It's all good. Yeah, They're and wonderful we, pieces. We have so many examples of that in other music. Like that has never stopped, you know, anyone playing the fantasy in D minor by Mozart. Exactly. Right? Everyone just comes up with their own ending. And I know it might seem funny that you think I'm, uh, that I'm talking about this at length, but I've had pianists come to me being like, what's yeah. going on in this score? And I, it's not lining up. I'm like, calm down. <laughs> it's okay. Just, <laughs> and then you do some research. You can read about it more in my monograph, how to go about it. Yeah. I think that maybe Amelia is describing my experience of looking at <laughs> one of Anne's glass houses and I'm like, this tune doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. You helped me. I don't know if you remember that, but a few years ago when I began to attempt to learn a glass house. Maybe I should pick it back up again. I found some mistakes. I got frustrated and then, okay, I'm shutting yeah. that for a little bit. And you helped me decipher, oh yes, okay, you have to count. You need to do some math, add this up and it all works out. Yeah, you do have to do and, some math. Anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
I think in all music, there's some math involved. And then um, after that, like after you do analysis, like honestly, spend the time on the analysis. You'll thank yourself later on. Step two, just like our piano teachers always used to tell us, practice hands separately. The left hand ostinato, memorize the pattern to the point where you can not only recall which number corresponds to each pitch and does number the pitches for you, but know it so well that you can feel the placement of each note on the keyboard. Once you try it, you'll know what I mean. Mm -hmm. The music goes by so quickly that you need to feel that the ostinato alignment is correct with the tune and not think it. Pianists, you, you probably will get that. And then while the left hand is settling, like that ostinato, start to learn the right hand tunes in the spirit of East Coast fiddle music, because that's what they were inspired by. So keeping that spirit in mind. And then once that's settled, you can, of course, start to play hands together, but just go real, really slowly at first in very small segments, even just one tune at a time, because the parts are so independent. One half of your body is doing one thing and the other is doing something else to the extreme. And yeah. <laughs> so just really slow. And then over time, it just starts to fuse together. Have lots of patience. Stay calm because you're going to need those feelings of calm to pull from when you are performing. For touch, I recommend a light and nimble articulation. And then of course, supportive supple wrists, forearms, because tension is not your friend in these pieces. So those are just some things to keep in mind as you keep learning. And then think about tempo. I write at length about tempo, particularly with her faster works. One person's version of fast doesn't have to be your version of fast. And keep in mind, these pieces don't actually have a tempo marking. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, they used to. And they were fast. It was like the eighth note was it was like 400. It was crazy. Oh, yeah. But in the uh, recent edition, there's no tempo markings. Keep in mind, I think these pieces would be quite boring if they were too slow. And Christine right. Professor-Quilico gives us a beautiful example of these fast and fun and intense interpretations. And Anne loved them. And this is no criticism of the way she plays them because they're absolutely fantastic. I just think it's also important to remember that there is many interpretations of quick so just keep that in mind as Absolutely. you're learning. Then other musical elements. Anne wasn't one to put in a lot of things like dynamics and articulation, particularly through the later years in her career because I quote her, so I very often don't put in any dynamics or indicate voicing or anything because putting myself on the side of the player, I think that I would love to be allowed to work these things out for myself. So thank like you, that. Anne, yep. for giving us some autonomy. It's wonderful yet terrifying because yeah. <laughs> we're trained to follow the instructions. So my recommendation when it comes to dynamics, mm -hmm. I like to make choices that provide some contrast. Again, staying in that spirit of fun, upbeat fiddle music. Most of them are fun and upbeat. There's some darker ones. And then as for things like pedal, I recommend not flooding the music, but use it as a way to make the legato connections between large leaps a little bit easier. You can also use it to color certain climactic points. Use your ears. Those are some of my recommendations for the glass houses. They're That's great. tremendously fun. Enjoy. They're tremendously fun and murderously difficult. But <laughs> I have to say the glass houses, I love listening to a recording of them on piano. And I also found a recording on two marimbas. They're some of my favorite recordings to study to because I can kind of get lost in the repetitive 
meditative sound and it's very calm and very soothing. So I'll make sure to link some recordings of the glass houses and link some of your recordings as well and the recordings to those two albums. The marimba arrangements, amazing. Just, and they give you a different perspective on the piece too. Just that different tone color. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, they're great. On a different note, Anne wove some feminist messaging into her music. Could you tell us more about how she did that? So Seldom claimed she was, quote, born a feminist <laughs> and was inspired to find a way in which the inner workings of a piece of music could reflect feminism or a feminist idea and found that the repetitive processes of minimalist music could represent the female experience musically. The repetitive minimalist processes, Southam felt, were similar to the repetitive life-sustaining, those are her words, tasks like mending, weaving, knitting, and doing dishes that are traditionally viewed as women's work. The everyday tasks that are often completed patiently, inconspicuously by women, the processes and repetition in minimalist music became the perfect metaphor for the female experience in Seldom's view. Mm -hmm. So others believe, and myself included, that the metaphor or the extra musical concept <laughs> of feminism is very present in her pieces. Uh, Tamara Bernstein calls them her returning style. So this is a process of minimalism that she created. Southern believed that patiently playing through these long phrases, these very long phrases accompanied by cluster chords and triads, hold similarities to the completion of these life-sustaining tasks, these tasks that take patient care and time to complete. There is more to this concept, of course, but I believe that an understanding of this extra musical motivation adds a deeper meaning to a lot of her music, particularly the returning styles mm -hmm. that can maybe to some appear kind of, I don't want to say it, but I'm going to, boring on the page, but they're not. First of all, you don't need to have this metaphor to realize they're incredibly colorful and contemplative pieces. But as a performer, having that narrative, understanding Anne's perspective mm -hmm. can create an even more meaningful experience as you're performing. And I speak on this from a performer's perspective, and I believe that it's pertinent that this idea of feminist representation in minimalist music is examined by a feminist scholar. So please go do that work my fellow scholars. <laughs> it would be extremely interesting to read that. <laughs> yeah, I was talking with an older friend who was talking to me about Anne Southam's music, and she was reading about some of the feminist ideals. And she goes, I think that Anne was trying to get across, and this is just her own interpretation, that the life-sustaining tasks were incredibly repetitive, but also could be creative. Mm -hmm. That there's many ways to do these tasks. Absolutely. And in returnings, and without getting too technical, it's a tone row. Mm -hmm. It's built yeah. gradually, accompanied by chords, triads, cluster chords. And the analysis that I've done so far, I can't find a scheme or a pattern that's followed in the chords and clusters. Like mm -hmm. the same clusters and chords are used, but they're always in different orders. So mm -hmm. again, more in-depth analysis perhaps is required, but maybe that reflects that idea of like, it's a repetitive task, but it's done differently. It can still be creative with these slight variances. Just yeah. an idea anyway. Interesting. Okay, so a feminist music theory scholar needs to, to go take Please on do. that project. <laughs> Thank you. 
Have you learned any specific lessons from Anne's music? Are there themes that stand out to you in learning a lot of her music? From the perspective of performing music and playing music and learning music, I have learned to listen, mm-hmm. listen deeply, actively listen and engage with the sounds you are creating at that present moment. Her music is so much about the tone colors, Mm. right? And she did say this, especially in her slower works. When the music is slow, there's more time to appreciate the sound of the instrument itself, Mm -hmm. right? So this idea of like listening to the tone colors and, and listening to that decay in the sound. Another lesson I've learned is allowing, if that makes sense. You don't always have to make a piece great and amazing by being overly expressive and virtuosic and controlling every detail. Although that's required sometimes, absolutely. But sometimes you can simply exhale and allow the music to exist. Yeah. That was a really big lesson, particularly in playing her really slow minimalism. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that. And there's something to be said in music, like you don't have to, it doesn't mean it's not difficult, but you don't have to force it. Like you don't have to show how difficult this piece is. It can be a breath. I love that. I love that analogy. That's great. Do you have any favorites of Anne's pieces? What's one that you love that's maybe still on your list to perform? Two that I love, and I do play these pieces, are Rivers Number 5, Third Set. That one's really dear to me. I think maybe because it's one of the first I learned. It's just so sunny and I love it. And Remembering Schubert, of course. That was the piece that helped me find Anne's music. Another piece that I I want to learn and I've actually started learning recently is her Soundings for a New Piano, subtitled 12 Meditations on a 12-Tone Row. I'm choosing to learn this piece now because I'm longing for the experience of playing through a full set of pieces that, with the exception of a few movements, follow the same minimalist process mm-hmm. and completely work through the tone row. So, so far I've mostly played like one or two movements of a set, but I want that experience of like going right through all 12. One thing that's really neat about this work is the pieces do have maybe a little bit more variety than, than for example, simple lines of inquiry. Most of the movements are like that slow, introspective and reductive writing style. But there are some more emotionally overt ones that are much like her early works where you kind of romp around the piano in octaves and, <laughs> and play really loudly. And and I, I just love that you kind of get to experience many of her approaches to writing yeah. in one piece. And I think that's what I'm most excited about in studying this one. That's great. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that one day. It's been a real pleasure getting to chat with you. It's always a pleasure to talk with with you and thanks for letting me record our conversation today. So we're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions. There are no wrong answers. Just go with your gut. Can you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician? Not a specific moment, but definitely at some point in high school. Favorite piece or song to perform, which I think you might've just answered this. I've already said, but I'll say it again. Seldom's Rivers, number five, third set. Perfect. Have you ever been given bad career advice and what was it? Although I can't remember ever being directly told this by anybody. It's this sentiment you pick up in the competitive and like stressful environment of, of university music school is to never to say no. Oh, that's I'm not that's sure if I'm alone advice. in this. Pardon? Yeah. I like, said that's I'm terrible not, advice. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not sure if I'm the only one who's experienced this, but it's this sort of fear of failure that if you decline an opportunity that might be detrimental to your future, but as we all know, that's not sustainable. Yeah. And so I think I kind of uh, was locked into that mentality. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I don't think it was direct advice, but it's something you kind of 
pick up in the community. It's making the music community sound terrible. It's not. It's just, <laughs> that's just something to try to shield yourself from everybody. Right, right. There's this idea of like, we don't want to turn down an opportunity to make music because that's what we love yeah. to do. But sometimes, I mean, and I'm speaking to myself here, is sometimes if we overload our schedule with all of these opportunities, we don't have time to take care of ourselves and sleep and rest and yeah. eat and have fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's the best musical or career advice you can pass on to up and coming musicians? Well, I might as well just stay on this topic. It's <laughs> to set boundaries. Yeah. I think your 20s are certainly time to test those boundaries and push yourself. But I wish I had been less idealistic and perfection oriented. And I wish I had learned from all those times where I maybe had broken down or burnt out and listened <laughs> uh, to my needs sooner. I definitely don't regret the experiences I've had. They've helped make me the musician I am today and have the life I have today. But if I was to go back, I would set more boundaries. So people younger than me or people in different places, you know, different places in their career, please set boundaries that accommodate your unique nervous system. Everybody's different. Yeah. That's great advice. What are you listening to right now? Well, when it comes to like classical music or Western art music, I listen to a lot of CBC radio. Yeah, <laughs> I really do. I have a hard time choosing what to listen to sometimes. It causes me a little anxiety because I feel like I'm missing something. So, you know, putting it into the hands of those wonderful tempo and about time yeah. playlists is Thank very you, Julie Nasralla. I don't work for CBC or anything, but that's what I listen to a lot of. And then for more popular genres, I always listen to a lot of Elton John and Michael Jackson. That's like music I grew up on. And I'm actually starting to play more of that myself, which is pretty fun. That's so fun. Well, thanks for coming on Loud and Clear, Amelia. Can you let our audience know where they can find you and know about the exciting things that you're doing? Absolutely. So I try to keep my website up to date. It's pretty simple, ameliagraceyates.com. And I do occasionally post on social media at A-G-Y Piano. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Amelia. And that is a wrap on my episode for Canada Music Week with Dr. Amelia Yates and the music of Anne Southam. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you go out and listen to some wonderful music by Anne Southam. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. I'm your host, Olivia Adams. This is Loud and Clear, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. <laughs>